0: Good afternoon. It's Monday the 26th of October 2020. Mm. Just after one o'clock, welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border.
1: Lockdown deaths. It's starting to hit the, uh, the mainstream. This is a telegraph. Uh, Second lockdown spells an unprecedented non-COVID health crisis. And of course, this is what we've been talking about for the last two weeks in particular. We've been asking whether the lockdown deaths we saw in April would be uh, replicated this winter. Um, And uh, so they're saying uh, that all theoretical models are wrong. Some are just less wrong than others. Cast your minds back to March. Professor Neil Ferguson's now infamous estimation of 500,000 deaths. Uh, had just thrown the government into disarray despite similar apocalyptic predictions in Sweden of 65 uh, sorry of 85,000 deaths their government held their nerve their total is of just under 6,000 fatalities shines an unflattering light uh, on Ferguson's predictions uh, Sweden's overall excess mortality is lower than many countries and while positive results skyrocket on most of the continent the Swedes Are on a a milder trajectory, well, that's saying something. Uh, Now, it goes on to say that uh, when you look back years from now, uh, we can fully understand the true true extent of lockdown's damage. History will not be kind. Our society torn in half. A shattered economy and a non-COVID health crisis unlike anything we've ever seen. Uh, Other mainstream articles highlighting this as well. So here's the mail. Uh, lockdowns, uh, lethal toll uh, laid bare, 50,000 children see surgery postponed, and so on is their headline. So let's just look at the main uh, points that they're making here. Yes, 50,000 child operations cancelled in England, stroke treatment down by 45%, endoscopies down by nearly 90%, uh, accident and emergency presentation halved, weekly cancer detection reduced by 58%, And, uh, you know, this is pretty spectacular figures. And uh, we just remind you of our uh, graphic that we've been showing uh, that at the moment there is no excess mortality. Now, our argument from the beginning has been that the lockdown, which began in in week 13 of this year, began the process of excess mortality. Um, And the question then is, uh, is that what we're going to see this winter as well? Um, so I'm going to add the word yet on the end. Um, it's not clear exactly how this is going to pan out, but unless more people start talking about uh, what caused the excess mortality in the uh, in in the spring, uh, then unfortunately I foresee uh, the likelihood of the same thing happening this winter, Brian.
0: Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm going to add something to this, Mike, and it's my personal opinion. I may be unpopular for it, but the government knew absolutely knew what it was doing when it put the lockdown into place it knew what it was doing when it put the elderly people who had covid into the nursing homes and the care homes and locked them down and denied um, the medical treatment the government knew they're culpable it was murder and that will occur this winter if if the same routine follows
1: Uh, very quickly david uh, have you got any thoughts on this welcome to the program
2: it's remarkable, Mike, that listening to the mainstream media today is like listening to the UK column in May. Uh, the... <laughs> five yeah. months late, but they're getting there.
1: Well, possibly. Uh, they're still quite schizophrenic in general. Uh, so uh, so anyway, let's uh, let's move on to this then quickly. Uh, this is an article from Germany, uh, from uh, Der Tagspiegel. Uh, and let's give a quick translation of it Uh The Bundeswehr could be sent abroad for COVID-19 missions. They're saying around 160 Bundeswehr specialists could help with a NATO emergency plan in the corona pandemic. In addition to Germany, four other countries have agreed, and the four other countries include the United Kingdom. Uh, A spokesperson for the German Defence Ministry confirmed uh, that they had promised NATO support for its emergency plan, which is called Allied Hand. Uh, according to this, military, uh, sorry, medical personnel, pioneers, well, that's a bad translation perhaps, and experts from troops uh, will be made available for deployments abroad to ward off nuclear, biological or chemical dangers. Not quite sure how this is related to COVID-19, but that's the banner that it's being put under. Uh, and uh, the, emergency, the emergency plan should be activated, for example, if the health system in ally or NATO partner countries such as Ukraine, Georgia, or Sweden, uh, threatens to collapse during the due, uh, due to the very high numbers of infections. Uh, so they include Sweden in this surprisingly. Um, well, uh, quite. We mentioned the, the NATO defence ministers meeting on Friday's program, and Jens Stoltenberg was was asked about this uh, operation Allied Hand, uh, and he his answer was, I'm not familiar with what you refer to. Uh, But then he was asked a bit more, Uh, the questioner said, uh, German newspapers report that there's a NATO emergency plan called Allied Hand and that several nations have committed, amongst them Germany. Uh, Let me check, Germany and others, medical personnel, engineering capacities, uh, capabilities and experts uh, in order to support COVID-19 response. And the German newspapers mentioned that there are four nations, UK and France among them, contributing to that mission. Uh, And suddenly his tone changed somewhat. And he said, uh, yeah, well, if you're referring to the operational plan we've established for assisting allies with the pandemic, COVID-19, then we have a plan. Uh, And he went on to say, anyway, that doesn't matter so much. The one thing that matters, the thing that matters, and NATO encourages, and which also will be addressed at the meeting this week, is that our militaries help civilian health services, the civilian authorities to deal with the pandemic and this is very interesting Brian and David because this idea of military and civilian cooperation and collaboration is something that he promoted a number of years ago at a European Defence Agency conference along with Federico Mogherini but it's something that we're starting to see on Britain's streets. Uh, So here is the Telegraph again. And the headline is, Army Drafted In to Help with COVID Response in Tier 3 Areas to Combat a Second Peak of Infections. Um, and this, uh, according to the Telegraph, is coming under the uh, Military Aid to, civ- to Civil Authorities, MACA, uh, which covers the provision of military to support, support the civil power. Uh, various government agencies, the community at large, is provided on an emergency basis and fielded from what they describe as irreducible spare capacity. Now, uh, the definitions for all this and how it can be used can be found in this document Operations in the UK. This is from the Ministry of Defence, and it's sorry, Operations in the UK, the Defence Contribution to Resilience. So let's just have a look at what this says about MACA. Uh, It says this, military aid to civil authorities. MACA covers the provision of military support to the civil power, OGDs and the community at large. The support is provided on an emergency basis and fielded from irreducible spare capacity. It also includes support to the maintenance of government in times of crisis and conflict. Uh, It then goes on to say this, and this is the key thing, military aid should always be the last resort. And well, David, I'm not seeing any evidence whatsoever to suggest that the government has uh, run out of options, has investigated all possible options for providing additional capacity for the so-called COVID pandemic, uh, if there even is a pandemic at this point, which my earlier graphic suggests there absolutely is not. Um, So bearing in mind that military aid should always be the last resort, and bearing in mind that this seems to, uh, this policy seems to be not just a UK policy, but an international policy through NATO of uh, military supporting civil authorities. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on this.
2: It's, it's very troubling. Uh, the, the international aspect of this, uh, particularly so, because questionable enough, uh, uh, though the presence of our own troops on our own streets uh, engaging in policing um, and uh, civil control over our population is uh, the idea that we're now looking at an international body moving international troops across borders to do the same thing with the with the endorsement of the government but not necessarily the people is is doubly doubly worrying and then when you factor in um, the continuity of government aspect of this Um, there's nothing there that gives me a warm and fuzzy feeling.
0: Yeah, Brian? Well, exactly. And, And I'm going to say that the UK column over many years pointed a finger at the um militarization of british police the joint training exercises with uh, europol the setting up of, tra- of training systems with them we've we've even had the british police going to israel to be trained for whatever reason but we've seen the militarization of the police and now we're seeing the military brought in on the streets this is very dangerous it's very dangerous as as you say david if we've now got foreign Um, Well, the idea that we could get foreign army units on the streets in UK. um, Do I think they're heading there? Yes, I do. Mm. I absolutely do.
1: Well, uh, let's look at uh, what was going on at the weekend then. And uh, well, the BBC here, COVID-19 arrests at London anti-lockdown protest. 18 people were arrested, according to the BBC. Large crowds gathered outside Buckingham Palace, where the police were stationed Uh, before moving on to Trafalgar Square. Some protesters carried placards calling for freedom and an end to the tyranny of COVID-19 restrictions. The Metropolitan Police said the crowds had been dispersed but urged people to continue social distancing. Uh, There was some disruption on Westminster Bridge. Well, was there and was there any justification once again for this type of uh, police action? Uh, Thank you very much uh, to um, the people that sent me through this through the Angus Lancaster sent me this uh, video through uh, and uh, well it doesn't look like there was any particular justification for any police intervention there Brian it looked like that was a very well behaved and uh, uh, well positive uh, protest
0: Yeah. And of course, that makes it very, very difficult for the authorities because if the protests stay perfectly peaceful, it's obvious who's causing the trouble, isn't it?
1: Yes. Uh, David.
0: No Gestapo policing
2: was one of the uh, signs that passed there. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, You're talking you're looking at a happy crowd there. You're looking at a lot of smiling faces. It's as diverse as it possibly can be. It's 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 all all types and ages and colors and persuasions of people. And they're out there saying, um, we want to be free. And the police action that I've seen on video was exceptionally aggressive and nasty and amounted to little more than assault.
1: Uh, And, but of course, what did the BBC focus on? They didn't make any of the points you've just made.
2: No, um, I would imagine (laughs) they wouldn't.
1: No, indeed.
0: Nor nor were they out, um, 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 what's the word, integrating with these people and talking to them, interviewing them to find out what they believed and why they believed it. This simply doesn't happen. Indeed. So uh, let's
1: move on to this then. Um, Here is uh, William Rag MP. He's uh, from the Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee. uh, And he's saying this, Uh, In the effort to fight the spread of COVID-19 and attempt to mitigate its impact on the economy and wider society, the government is aiming to deliver policies that provide a delicate balance between reducing infection spread and allowing the economy to open up. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, I've seen much evidence of the government attempting to deliver any policies that provide such a balance at all. But anyway, uh, William Ragg goes on to say, uh, for such policies to be successful, they have to be Based on highly accurate and up-to-date data. Uh, well, I think uh, based on the uh, comments that we were, that were in the Telegraph that we led off the program with, uh, there isn't much evidence of that up-to-date data at all. Uh, but let's just uh, look at what he is and the Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee are asking for, because they're now opened, have opened up a consultation on this. Um, so they're asking for evidence. Did the government have good enough data to make decisions in response to coronavirus and how quickly were government able to gather new data? Was data for decision making sufficiently joined up across departments? Was relevant data disseminated to key decision makers in central and local government, other public services like schools, businesses and interested members of the public? Now, uh, I have to say that there's a few uh, interesting aspects to these questions because of course Uh, sufficiently joined up across departments. This is referring to the fusion doctrine, which we've been talking about for quite some time, Uh, a whole of government approach to decision making and policy making. This is a a change in the way that we're governed, a very significant change, and perhaps uh, this call for evidence is uh, really looking for data to back that change up. Uh, But it, it goes on, Uh, Were key decisions such as lockdowns underpinned by good data and was data-led decision-making timely, clear, and transparently presented to the public? Uh, Was data shared across devolved administrations and local authorities to enable mutually beneficial decision-making? So there's no question about whether there should be devolution or whether the devolved administrations should be making some of these decisions. It's it's just presumed, but was the data good enough for that? Uh, is the public able to co- comprehend the data published during the pandemic? Because uh, the, the public may not be able to comprehend data at all. Brian, you know, uh, is there sufficient understanding among journalists and parliamentarians to enable them to present and interpret data accurately? I think the public probably understands the data a heck of a lot better than the journalists and the parliamentarians. Well, and
0: there've been a lot of um, informed questions asked of, of government. They're simply not replying, they're simply just giving the line.
1: Indeed. And uh, does the government have a good enough understanding of data security and do the public have confidence in the government's data handling? How will the change in responsibility for government data impact future decision making? Uh, And so this consultation is only open for another couple of days uh, and uh, any responses need to go back to Claire Hardy and the details are on the screen there uh, with uh, an email address and a telephone number. But uh, the question then is uh, Is the data out there? David, now, uh, the UK column has, has an article on it, on the front page at the moment uh, with a lot of data from Freedom of Information requests. And we now have another Freedom of Information request and answers to, to give to people.
2: Yes, I thought this was very interesting and it shows just how useful um, the, the actions by, by our, our, our viewers are. Um, in revealing what's really going on. So this is uh, an FOI request to Buckinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust. It's uh, covering the period up to the 30th of August. And it asks, how many COVID-19 patients are you treating at hospitals in the Trust? And the answer is none. How many of these patients are in intensive care units? Answer, none. Uh, What's the total number of beds in the Trust? And the answer is 376. many are occupied 327 so that makes it absolutely clear that as of august there was no COVID in that part of the country and the more data we can get like this the more we will be able to hold the lying politicians to account and show them what's really happening on the ground and that will defeat the lies
1: Uh, it will indeed Uh, now the only limitation of freedom of information of course is the delay that there is in getting the responses back but I think uh, it's still a tool that we can use uh, effectively, David.
2: It is. I mean, the, the, you have the 21, uh, 21 days delay. Uh, everything's a, a little bit like looking in the rearview mirror. But nonetheless, it produces vast amounts of data and it's, it's tremendously useful. So I would encourage people who are, who are listening uh, to, to engage with the local health board and send us the results.
1: Uh, now, we were talking about the military a minute ago, but uh, things perhaps not all hunky-dory within the military itself Yes, yeah, so this is from the Defense Net.
2: As COVID-19 uh, health protection measures have been put in place for you and your units protection to enable you to do your job. But there are too many instances of these measures being unnecessarily ignored across the army, particularly in barracks and headquarters. While it is everyone's responsibility to comply, the chain of command must enforce the measures found in the COVID-19 health protection uh, instruction version 10.2. Uh, if you see the measures are not being enforced, one, encourage colleagues to follow the guidance. So we're looking for some peer pressure there Two, inform your chain of command. So I think that's possibly not going to go down too well in the army uh, if you are spending your time informing on your mates. I'd
0: say, I'd say, <laughs> say it with a smile on my face, it won't be, David, it definitely won't be.
1: No, indeed. Now, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we were talking about the uh, Liverpool gym owner that was refusing uh, to close during the lockdown. He was pretty heavily fined as a result of that. And of course, we had armed police going to uh, try to enforce that closure.
2: Yes, so this is, a, this is another uh, happy story. Uh, we don't have that many of those to go around. Uh, so the gym owner, um, he was fined. He, he, he faced up to the, the armed police. He remained calm. He remained polite, he remained resilient, and he fought uh, against uh, the oppression. And the people who were watching this responded. And, and a, a crowd fundraiser uh, provided 52,000 uh, pounds. So he says, all we're trying to do is save the physical and mental health of our city, region of our country. We stand united, we have everyone behind us and we have a select few trying to derail this right now. Guys, we cannot let this happen. We. Are Part of the solution, not of the problem. You need to stand with us. The fight goes on. So this this is what he said as he was being threatened with uh, essentially unlimited fines um, accumulating quickly. And very quickly, uh, the government found a reverse gear. And um, well, he can open now. So uh, this is Sky News reporting here. He's, he doesn't need his 53,000 pounds. He got in donations. He hopes to give it away. Um, uh because uh the, the the decision's been reversed he can open up all the gyms in the area can open up um uh he said he's elated and relieved and uh he's you know he's, he's thanking the public for the huge win but of course this this uh report identifies other areas of the economy in this case soft play areas, who have got the same problem they're being threatened with the same the same restrictions the same threats of fines uh, and uh, they're not being allowed to open. And there's no more justification for that either. So the fight goes on.
0: Yeah, I'll just add to that, David. We often get people writing to us or speaking to us and saying, can you give us more good news in the UK column? Because a lot of what you report is very tough stuff. And that uh, particular episode you've just described is a classic example of where people take local action they say no we're not accepting this they do something positive they donate their money or they give support in other ways we see a result occurring that is good news so the simple message i think for our viewers and listeners is that where you take the right action locally and there's a lot of people get involved you can stop this monster that's trying to uh install itself in the country so i'm going to say that's a good news story but there could be a lot more of these if people took action locally
2: it shows right. it also shows the power of of video you know the, the camera phone is our greatest weapon because uh, they had video of the armed police standing looking threatening and the video of the gym owner explaining his case uh, calmly and simply and rationally and the contrast was very powerful
1: Um, Now, it was announced there, Boots announced today that they are soon going to be providing uh, a very quick COVID 19 test. I think it's going to take 19 minutes uh, to get a result. uh, And I think it's going to cost you, I can't remember, 180 quid or something like that to do that. Uh, Yeah, uh, indeed. But uh, David, uh, we've been in the position of quick tests before. Yes, so
2: thanks to the viewer who spotted this one. This is a New York Times article from. January the twenty second two thousand and seven, and the heading uh, headline is "Faith in quick test leads to an epidemic that wasn't." So this is an interview with the doctor, um, and uh, look at the situation as follows: Uh, for months, nearly everyone involved in the medical centre had a huge, um, uh, sorry, thought the medical centre had a huge whooping cough outbreak with extensive ramifications. Nearly 1000 health workers in the hospital in Lebanon, um, uh, New Hampshire, uh, were giving a preliminary test and furloughed from work until the results were in 142 people, including Dr. Herden, were told they appeared to have the disease. 1000s were given antibiotics and vaccine for protection, hospital beds were taken out of commission, including some in intensive care. Then about eight months later, healthcare workers were dumbfounded to receive an email message from the hospital administration, informing informing them the whole thing was a false alarm. As it turned out, not a single case of whooping cough was confirmed with the definitive test, growing the bacterium uh, uh, Bordetella pertussis in the lab. Instead, it appears that the healthcare workers probably were afflicted with ordinary respiratory diseases like the common cold. Dr. Cathy A. Petty, an infectious disease specialist, at the University of Utah said the story had one clear lesson. Quote, the big message is that every lab is vulnerable to having false positives, Dr. Petty said. Continuing the quote, no single test result is absolute. And that is even more important with a test result based on PCR. Uh,
1: Which of course is exactly the test that's being used uh, generally for COVID-19. Now. I'm fascinated by this because, of course, what that said there was it said that it appears the healthcare workers probably were afflicted with an ordinary respiratory diseases like the common cold. Um, So here we are heading into a winter season. Uh, We've got the uh, Public Health England no longer providing uh, a weekly report on COVID-19 statistics. Those are now being rolled in with influenza, uh, which is making it extremely difficult for uh, bodies like the Office for National Statistics to actually separate uh, between those. Uh, and of course, if you mash everything up like that, you just end up with, well, you can generate any narrative you like out of it, and it becomes very, very difficult for people to get uh, hold of actual uh, data that's meaningful. Um, but this demonstrates, this article demonstrates this type of thing has happened before. They're playing the same card
2: Yes, let's not pretend that, that we don't know what the problem is. Uh, unreliable testing and and media hype and government overreaction generates actions which are completely unnecessary and which will be shown to be completely unnecessary later on. But, but by that point, the damage is done. Now, it's not just the damage in case of partially closing down one hospital. This is damage that's partially closing down the entire country. Mm.
0: Well, um, yeah, the government agenda. Uh, David, uh, let's have a look at this Daily Mail article here, which uh, was uh, sent to me. Um, the key bit is sponsored by UK government. So here's the headline NHS COVID 19 app. Everything you need to know about how, when, and where it works. Um, who's written it? Anonymous person in the uk government so this is propaganda it should have a propaganda label on it It doesn't i was fascinated at the end of the article it said this this is the uk government information for readers in england only so i thought there might be a few constitutional issues there somewhere but uh, uh, that was just an aside Um, People are mentioned. So these are the people speaking for the government. Um, So we've got a professor, Christoph Fraser, University of Oxford. Um, So he's a professor of pathogen dynamics at Nuffield Department of Medicine. And he's been an independent advisor on the epidemiology of coronavirus throughout the app production. So he's a key man in this. He's a key government man. The government trusts him enough to use him as a spokesperson. Person. Uh, then we've got our old favourite Dr Amir Khan, uh, TV doctor. I think he also must do a bit of fashion modelling there. Uh, he said he was nervous at first, but the app has already worked for me. Well, it would, because clearly I don't think he thinks a lot. Uh, resident GP on ITV's Good Morning Britain has seen firsthand how the NHS COVID 19 app can help protect patients and health workers. So this is a total propaganda piece for the government on the app. But let's just focus in on this man and what he said. So uh, Professor Christoph Fraser, the more people who use it, the more effective it will be. Countries like Germany and New Zealand were able to keep mortality low throughout the first wave. And with a combination of the app and manual contact tracing, they're now controlling the epidemic. What Um,
1: epidemic?
0: I'm sorry, what did I say?
1: No, no, I'm I'm just saying, what what epidemic? Oh, what epidemic, yes,
0: yes, (laughs) right. Well, David, just the words of that. So countries like Germany and New Zealand were able to keep mortality low throughout the first wave, that's one statement. And then you conflate it, and with a combination of the app and manual contact tracing, they're now controlling the epidemic. But if it was low in the first place, it's already happened, isn't mm-hmm.
2: it? It's 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 nice sneaky language. It's very um, crafted. Uh, this is crafted language. Crafted, you know, crafted. That's that's a good word. Yes, it's 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 to create a particular impression that is that is clearly not borne out by the facts. Can cannot be because otherwise they would make it in a factual
0: way. Yep. So let's uh, carry on through. The app has been extensively tested. It was developed with Google and Apple engineers. Therefore you needn't worry people. Google and Apple are involved, you can be, rest assured, and leading scientists who really focused on getting the measurements right so you won't get a notification from a person walking down the street, just extended close contact. So really he's warning people that this app is going to get right to the heart of your private life, there but, are going to be no secrets.
1: Uh, yeah but this is this again is uh, at the very least disingenuous if not complete misinformation and fake news because It was developed with Google and Apple engineers. Well, let's get this right. What Google and Apple did was that they uh, placed a framework uh, on their uh, phones on which people could develop apps. The government's initial approach had been not to use Google and Apple's framework, but to try to do it themselves using a centralised server where they could hoover up uh, all the data for themselves. Uh, Google and Apple, at Apple's uh, behest, put protections in that to, to, to stop that kind of thing happening. Now, it turned out that the NHS was not able to make their system work so they then went back cap-in-hand uh, to Google and Apple and said we want to use your uh, your framework after all. So the implication here is that, that Google and Apple helped the government. No, the government wanted to go their own way. They cocked it up and then they went back and asked for assistance.
0: Right. Well, okay, let's fo- let's follow it through with the next bit. The privacy of this app is such that it cannot enforce self-isolation because it does not know who or where you are. However, the only other choice to slow the spread is local or national lockdowns, which are indiscriminate and unfair. When you receive a request to self-isolate, you're doing your bit. This is more conflated subjects here, but, mm it cannot enforce self-isolation this is an algorithm at work here but we're being led to believe that this is actually a thought process going on Uh, well who is this man let's have a little look at uh, what they said well they did say that he was part of nuffield department of medicine that link was declared but they didn't declare the link with big data institute from oxford university and why do we need to look at that because of the people involved Um, So we've got at the bottom end, the Medical Research Council, maybe that's fair enough. We've got the British Heart Foundation, maybe that's fair enough. Uh, We've got the Higher Education Funding Council, maybe that's okay. But then we've got the Robertson Foundation. So um, I don't know whether any of the team here know who the Robertson Foundation is. I didn't. Uh, We've got Welcome, Uh, I think we know which that one is. We're into the heart of the big pharmaceutical beast there. And we've got the Lai Ka Shing Foundation. So who were they? Well, let's have a look at a couple of these. This is Robertson Foundation. Uh, it's a family hedge fund sort of affair. It was a hedge fund. That money is now apparently being used for the good of the world. Uh, but it's a family affair, Julian Joseph, and a Joseon family, and the Tiger Foundation, and the Atarora Foundation, and a few others which are not actually declared, or I didn't find them. Uh, What does it look like? Well, this is is what it looks like. So these people have got some foot in the door with uh, deeply sensitive NHS data, data it would appear. What are they? Well, they're very wealthy people who've played around with hedge funds. But here they are in the middle of uh, COVID-19 crisis because the Tiger Foundation has got its own response. So the question I have, and I suggest the audience need to have, who are these people and who invited them to get involved in serious matters concerning the health of the, uh, of the UK public? Well, here's the Li Ka Shing Foundation, uh, building the good of science. Uh, we seek to inspire societal improvement through supporting education and healthcare initiatives. Uh, well, all that sounds uh, okay. Uh, What are they up to? Well, they're worldwide. So this is one of their maps showing uh, where they're active and they're there in Canada and the United States and UK and Israel and out in the Far East and Australia. Uh, But the next one takes the biscuit because this is activity inside China. So now we've got uh, an evidence trail which is showing that this huge foundation, apparently the second largest private foundation after Bill and Melinda Gates, has got a foot in the Chinese doorstep, or on the Chinese doorstep, as well as the UK and the Western world. So what exactly is their interest in UK NHS big data? And of course, the article didn't even mention them because now we're getting down the path of who's really controlling what's going on with COVID-19.
1: OK, now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. Uh, a couple of new articles to let you know about. Uh, first of all, uh, Ian Davis here has written uh, Wastewater Waste, the official COVID-19 narrative. And this is uh, uh, much more detail on the topic that I was talking about on Friday's news programme uh, with respect to the use of uh, of the government monitoring of our poo uh, to discover how widely Uh, COVID-19 is uh, progressing through society. Uh, Also from Alex Thompson here, uh, what is a COVID-19 marshal? And uh, if you want to understand that, then please go and read those. Both those articles, very important. Please uh, share them as widely as possible. Uh, And also, David, uh, the latest Northern Exposure video.
2: Yes, the, the last, the fifth and for the moment, the final one in the Samantha Baldwin interview series. Um, brings the story up to date um, and goes through some of the evidence that's come to light Um, in in relatively recent uh, times after the court hearings. uh, All of this evidence remains ignored and uh, Samantha remains uh, a lone voice speaking out without any state government uh, or uh, judiciary or police support on behalf of her sons.
1: Okay, thank you for that. And uh, AV11.1, Brian, coming up this weekend.
0: Yes, I encourage people to go to the AV11 site and have a look at the full list of uh, speakers and details on the individual talks being given. But what timing. Uh, we've got these tremendous events happening around us and the av will be there right at the heart of it starting on Saturday evening.
1: Yes, and we'll just mention that uh, UK column is facilitating that for Ian Crane. So uh, we're gonna be busy uh, all next weekend uh, with AV11.1. Uh, we're not gonna do a news programme on Monday the, the 2nd of October, therefore.
0: In order to recuperate. Indeed, Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: And, uh, and David, then finally, uh, just uh, to let people know of an upcoming demonstration.
2: Yes, 7th November uh, 2020 at 12.30 Holyrood Park. Uh, This is a demonstration to save the hospitality industry, the businesses and the jobs in Scotland. And just a few moments before we came live, I got an invite uh, from the organizers to ask me to speak at this one. So uh, anyone who wants to hear that, um, please come along. Okay. And there'll there'll be many better speakers as well, including, uh, uh, Miss Cahill from uh, Ireland and many other people who know a great deal about uh, the the crisis we're facing. So uh, yes, please, please, please join us all for that.
1: Okay, look forward to that, and that is uh, on the seventh of November at Holyrood. Good stuff. Let's move on then to this. Uh, And this is uh, the I newspaper, US election marks a reckoning for social media, but the crackdowns are a sign of fear, not altruism. So uh, they're saying uh, that Big Tech's efforts to quash fake news and misinformation are a response to regulations that might be imposed if they fail. In reality, fake news is nothing new, but it took the 2016 US presidential election to bring it to the world's attention. False articles with explosive headlines such as FBI agents suspected and Hillary email leaks dead." conspiracy theories and doctored images swept across Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Western security experts blame Russian operatives. Most believe they manipulated social network users in an attempt to sway the US election towards the ultimate victor, Donald Trump, despite Kremlin denials. Big tech has gone to great lengths to acknowledge its past shortcomings and is keen to avoid Uh, Another reputational battering in 2020, Facebook, Twitter, and Google were among the major tech names to announce in August. They were working directly closely with the US government agencies to protect the integrity of the election. Um, Well, they quote uh, this gentleman, uh, Justin Fear, uh, who's from an organization called Darktrace. uh, And he's saying in the next 12 months, we're going to see major tech reforms either proposed or actually acted on. Uh, he said, if you use the war on terror as an example, these platforms would never allow an Al-Qaeda training manual to be uploaded. Uh, uh, but uh, other groups have been allowed to remain until very recently. So uh, that's a statement from Darktrace. Now, who is Darktrace? Uh, this is them. Uh, they are a self-learning cyber AI for your dynamic workforce company. They provide all the, uh, the, the cyber protection for all kinds of companies including the National Health Service uh, and so on uh, and uh, well they're a very exciting company they've got their they're a bit like Circo, Brian you know they sort of uh, they have this kind of, of reach so the biggest got, company you've never heard indeed. of. indeed so eBay t-mobile micron Rolls-royce uh, Samsung and so on down the bottom uh, as I say the NHS is in there as well and they're a very interesting organization so let's have a look at who is involved with them. Here's Lord Evans uh, of, uh, this is their advisory board, Lord Evans of Weardale, uh, former director general of MI5 from 2007 to 2013, uh, spent 33 years with MI5. Uh, he uh, was uh, appointed to the House of Lords in 2014 uh, on the personal recommendation of the prime minister uh, and sits as a cross bench peer. Now, um, he's also the chair of the committee for standards uh, on standards in public life uh, and they are at the moment looking into the electoral process in the UK because of course the Russians weren't just allegedly uh, manipulating the US election they were also allegedly manipulating past elections in the UK including the Brexit referendum so there is a big uh, effort to look at the uh, the electoral commission its role Uh, and uh, the the kinds of money that are being spent on UK elections, and he is in charge of that investigation, but he also is uh, sort of head of the advisory board for this organisation, Darktrace, which is busy making statements on this situation. Who else is on here? Uh, Professor Nick Jennings, uh, Vice President for Research and Enterprise at Imperial College London, responsible for promoting, supporting, and facilitating their research performance and for leading on the delivery of research and enterprise strategy. So this man, probably pretty heavily involved in the uh, nonsense models, which were used to justify lockdown. Uh, Who else have we got here? Alan Wade uh, had a 35 year career in the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, where he latterly served as chief information officer before retiring in 2005. Uh, Who else have we got? The right Honourable Amber Rudd, uh, of course, former Home Secretary, Uh, lost her seat in uh, November 20 or October uh, 2019. And uh, well, former Home Secretary, what else can we say about her? She is uh, on the advisory board. Uh, And Mike Lynch, OBE, uh, probably one of the richest uh, people in the UK, uh, having pioneered three of the biggest success stories in UK tech. uh, He eventually sold one of his uh, companies. Uh, to Google, I think it was for 11, or no, it was THP. sorry, apologies, uh, for $11 billion in 2011. So a pretty wealthy guy. So that's their advisory board. Um, And uh, well, of course, what we do have to remember is that this whole censorship agenda with respect to social media was begun by the British government. uh, And here we have an organisation absolutely in the middle of that, uh, also heavily... uh, organized by past British government figures. And, uh, uh, well, it's, it's not sinister, a coincidence. It, it, yes. It's
0: sinister, Mike. You look at the connectivity between these people, the power and the vast amounts of money at their disposal. None of the, none of this is put on the table in front of the public. It's dangerous. It's sinister.
1: So just briefly, getting back to the original I article, I think they, they have it right in the sense that, that social media companies are uh, being pushed into doing this. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're promoting this censorship agenda because they're concerned about the, the types of regulation that are coming down the pipe in the not too distant future. But it was the British government that started this process by inviting those social media companies into norm- Number 10 Downing Street. And Amber Rudd uh, was the person who did that. Uh, and they were invited to meet her and to meet uh, Theresa May at the time. Uh, and that process has continued since. If you want to know more about that, Get on the UK Column website. About a third of the way down the page, you'll you'll see a a logo which says "censored" on it, uh, and that'll take you to a page with a timeline that takes you right the way through uh, the the, the major steps that got us to this point. Yeah. What's next?
0: Get the lid off it. Um, I think. What's yes next next is is David.
1: Yes, Uh, David. The BBC then this morning uh, is pushing out a video clip uh, about Kate Shemarani and her family.
2: Yes, the BBC, the little charmers that they are, have got a, a video um, with Kate Shemirani's son, Sebastian, uh, criticizing her and all, all of her works, condemning her and all of her works, uh, live on, well, on the BBC. Um, and this is meant to um, be an attack on, on Kate Shemirani. It's meant to make us all not listen to her. Um, now, the BBC, of course, uh, being uh, a profoundly atheistic organizing these, organization these days, uh, don't know scripture and don't know that if you speak the truth, your opponents will be of your own household, is a bit of advice that's in the book. Um, and as a result, people who are watching this will be unconvinced and will instead um, look at Kate Shemarani and what she says and judge what she says uh, on its merits. And what does she say? Um, well, they've put this up, the response. She said she didn't talk about her family, which then she was quite right not to do so. She did tell us, quote, from what I can see, it would appear a conspiracy theorist is actually now anyone who believes something other than what your controllers want them to believe. I find this deeply disturbing, Uh, end quote. And I I can only agree with that sentiment.
1: Um, it, it was pretty. It was a pretty low hit piece, actually.
2: It was nasty. It, it there was there was something um, quite queasy about the whole thing. Um, the 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 use of language was uh, was all controlled and all manipulated. There was nothing upfront about it. It didn't come across as the sort of output you get from an organisation that's in good moral health.
0: Yeah, David, can we just add to that, that the tactic to get in and get family members at each other's throats, that's been a classic tactic of social services where they've targeted a family to get the children. And we've seen this, this tactic being used in other government departments. Can you get in and turn the family on itself? One of the, one of the key psychological attacks. I suppose in some ways, she should be honoured that the BBC thinks she's so dangerous they need to do that.
1: Uh, Indeed. Now, uh, this is just looking for a little bit of comment from you both on this one. This has been tweeted out by the Ministry of Justice this morning. Uh, From today, another 28 Crown Courts will have the technology to allow vulnerable witnesses and victims to pre-record their cross-examination before trial. Uh, All Crown Courts will be able to provide this special measure by the end of the year. Uh, They say uh, the judge decides on a case-by-case basis whether to pre-record the cross-examination. This decision will be made if a witness or victim is considered vulnerable, for example, a child or someone with a physical disability or mental disorder. Uh, They're going to say when this pre-recorded cross-examination takes place at an earlier date to the trial, it's done as close to the time of the offence as possible to help memory recall and support the vulnerable witness or victim to give their best evidence. Uh, they say the vulnerable witness or victim is taken to a safe, separate room from where they can answer questions for the cross-examination. The judge, defendant, defence and prosecution are in the courtroom, just like in a traditional cross-examination. And finally, uh, they say the recording of this cross-examination is kept and played at the later trial. Pre-recorded cross-examination preserves a defendant's right to a fair trial and reduces stress for the vulnerable witness or victim giving evidence to a full courtroom at trial. Now, I'm gonna say I see both sides of this in the sense that obviously some people are, in some cases, vulnerable witnesses. uh, And in those cases, they need some form of protection. But I'm not convinced, David, if I start with you, I'm not convinced that this is the answer. Because first of all, how can you possibly cross-examine a witness uh, before the prosecution evidence is given and expect you know because surely the cross examination is going to is going to rely on some uh, information which may have come out at the trial and so how can you possibly get a fair trial under those circumstances?
2: Yeah, this is the question that occurred to me first off is how how can how can anyone know what questions to ask under those circumstances? It's being done before all the information's in. Um, I. I We have to recognize that the the experience of people who are vulnerable going into courts has been often horrendous, um, as they've been taken apart by cross-examination of a most um, personal and aggressive type, um, and something needed to be
0: done. I'm not sure this is it. What what comes into my mind straight away is the family courts, of course, where the long um, line from the government, the judicial system has been that these courts need to be secret in order to protect the identity and welfare of the child. But when the trial um, is taken out of the uh, of the public eye because there are no juries present, there are no uh, press, there's nobody actually watching what's happening. The moment you can get the um, the people um, questioned and there's nobody watching what's going on d- in a direct sense, uh, then the more the cases can be manipulated. A jury can't pick up the nuances if they're looking at a a recorded um, video of questioning. Mm. So it's sold on protecting vulnerable people, but I think the reality over a great many years is that it actually does the opposite.
1: Uh, Right now, David, uh, let's have a look at this. Who's Britain's alleged prime minister-in-waiting, Rishi Sunak? Now we're very tight for time, so just as quickly as possible, please. Okay,
2: Uh, thanks to the good people at the Fresh Start Foundation. Investigating and House came on this. so the ferociously intelligent new cabinet minister, the Maharaja of the Dales, um, it reports here that he's a multimillionaire. He's worked in California, India, and Britain, including for Goldman Sachs. And then it says he went on to set up his own business, thelemy Partners, a private investment partnership 2010, with an initial fund of 536 million. Hmm. So the Financial Times picks this up from a different perspective. Um reports uh Patrick de Gorse, an ex merrill Lynch banker, who co-founded Children's Investment Fund with Richard Horne, has raised more than $700 million, 146 million pounds, for his new hedge fund, Thelemy Partners. Um, so this makes it a, 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 a huge launch. Then it, then it mentions where the name came from. Thelemy, which derives its name from the utopian abbey described by Renaissance humanist Francois Rebillet, in his book, the, the life of Gargantua and of uh, Pantan, Pantagruel, um, will soft close when it when it hits uh, one point two billion. So I thought, okay, that's an interesting choice of name for Rishi's uh, company. What's happening there? So if you go to this book, uh, a couple of interesting points. One, the inscription set upon the great gate of Thelemy, included the following, gold give us, God forgive us, and from all woes relieve us, that we the treasure may reap of pleasure and shun whatever's grievous. Gold give us, God forgive us. This gives me a slightly uneasy feeling, to put it mildly, but it got much worse because we then looked at what the, um, what the, the, the people who inhabited the fictional Abbey of Thelemy uh, believed in, it was quite striking. So how the Thelemites were governed and their manner of living, um, it, write, it the, the, the description was as follows. All their life was spent not in laws, statutes or rules, but according to their own free will and pleasure. They rose out of their beds when they thought good. They ate and drank and laboured and slept when they had mind to do it and were disposed to do it. None did awake them, none did offer them constraint to eat or drink or on any other thing, for so had gargantua established it. In all their rule, the strictest tie of their order, uh, there was but one clause to be observed. Do what thou wilt. And of course, do what thou wilt is the shorthand for the Thelema religion of Satanist Alistair Crowley. How interesting it is that the Chancellor, who may well be a Prime Minister, names his company after the religion of Satanist Alistair Crowley. I wonder what the significance of that is, gentlemen.
0: Uh, Maybe a a question needs to go to the gentleman to uh, actually ask him what he has to say about this. I think we might consider that. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, a big thank you to uh, the person who sent this uh, to me or alerted me to this one. It's eight predictions for the world in 2030. It's come from the World World Economic Forum, and it was put out by them on their Twitter account so i've taken some screenshots it they tell us you'll own nothing and you'll be happy that's reassuring isn't it Uh, this is how our world could change by 2030 so there's eight predictions let's have a look at them the first one is you'll own nothing and you'll be happy and i like this one whatever you want you'll rent and it'll be delivered by drone (laughs) so this is uh this is a really tremendous society that they're talking whatever you want You'll rent, you won't actually own it. It'll come from somebody else and you'll have to pay and it'll be delivered by a drone. We've really progressed. Um, The leading, uh, the US won't be the world's leading superpower. That's number two. And it says that instead, a handful of countries will dominate and I don't believe that UK was uh, listed in those countries at all.
1: No, but that's the great power competition that the UK military is talking about. This is why we've got to we've got to view the world through the eyes of uh, hybrid perpetual warfare and and no separation between war and peace.
0: Yep, Okay. Well, the World Economic Forum's on it. Number three you won't die waiting for an organ donor why not Uh, because we are going to be printing new organs we won't transplant organs we'll print new ones instead Uh, nice little look into the minds you'll you'll eat much less meat and you're going to be doing that because it will be an occasional treat sorry (coughs) not a staple and it'll be for the good of the environment and our health Uh, Number five, we'll have to do a better job at welcoming and integrating refugees. Why should that be? Uh, Because apparently climate change means that a billion people will be displaced. Um, So this is all pretty, I was gonna say apoplectic, but that's the wrong (laughs) word, you know what I mean. Um, You'll own nothing, you'll be happy. That's the line that's uh, repeated all the time, of course. Polluters will have to pay to emit carbon dioxide. And um, there'll be a global price on carbon. This will help make fossil fuels history. Number seven, you could be preparing to go to Mars. So nice could be there. You could be, you could be sat in your garden, um, but uh, scientists will have worked out how to keep you healthy in space. The start of a journey to find alien life, question mark. And number eight, Western values will have been tested to the breaking point And what's going to happen? Checks and balances that underpin our democracies must not be forgotten. And lastly, they say, like, comment and share. David, very quickly, that's pretty in your face stuff. It is uh, reminding me very much of George Bernard Shaw. Under socialism,
2: you would not be allowed to be poor. You'd be forcibly fed, clothed, lodged, taught, and employed, whether you liked it or not. If you were discovered that you had not the character and industry enough to be worth all this trouble, You might possibly be executed in a kindly manner but whilst you were permitted to live you would have to live well it's just been modernized for the uh current day it's It's just been idea
0: been modernized and the drones have been brought in for a bit of fun um let's have a look at this uh, little bit of video from the world economic forum on global councils because they're one of the key bodies advising it
1: The world in the 21st century faces so many problems which are complicated. I expect the digital transformation of life to bring huge changes
2: from science to healthcare to sensors to robotics. Globalisation means
0: that the issues are interdependent with each other across borders. So it's a huge enterprise to deal with that. How do you bring together and bring forward new ideas that have both the depth to deal with the technical issues and the breadth to deal with all the linkages across the world? The World Economic Forum brings us together, gives us the space to think over issues that are tremendously complicated with experts in other areas.
2: Everybody is a leader in their own field.
0: We actually learn a lot from them.
2: We have members from practitioners, regulators, academia, central banks that can really work in an unconstrained environment together.
1: This is unique there is no other gathering like this for bringing different perspectives together. It's a wonderful opportunity to cross-pollinate ideas and come together to look at where we want to go as a society.
2: And we develop a vision how could the world look like and then we derive some other different scenarios so that we can derive some call for actions.
0: When we come together as a summit we can grab experts from other parts of the world from other groups and really get a better sense of the issue. They're an incubator for all of these different ideas and solutions that global leaders discuss at Davos. The most interesting conversations are at the intersection of our work. The trade and investment crowd meets with the crowd on food security and technology and artificial intelligence. And the sum of all of this is what will allow us to then come
2: up with solutions that respond to the integrated challenge we're facing today.
1: We want to use the
2: World Economic Forum as a real platform to influence the system. And out of this, partnerships are really starting to build up.
1: As technology becomes more pervasive, the more scalable the
0: solutions that we build can be.
2: We can understand the change that's happening. We can shape it to reach the ultimate goal, which is everyone on this planet living in dignity, able to pursue their potential within the boundaries of the natural resources that we have available. That's a big goal. It's very exciting. It takes a lot of work but I think we can get there.
0: So there we are, Mike, we can go home because these people have got everything in hand. They've got our wellbeing, our best interests, our future, and um, the central banks are involved. Good. It's good, isn't it? So why can we trust them? Well, let's have a look at their own material. They tell us that the Global Future Councils, the the world's foremost multi-stakeholder an interdisciplinary knowledge network dedicated promoting innovative thinking to shape a more resilient, inclusive and sustainable future. Um, But the small print is really down at the bottom because it says it's an invitation only community and members are nominated for a one year period. So this is a secret club effectively. Uh, let's have a look at what they've uh, got into with their, our mission. They're, they're very big in producing, helping to produce the Davos Manifesto, leadership and governance. Uh, partners, you must have a look at those yourself because we're into all sorts of other trusts and foundations and big business. But I happen to notice they're the centre for the force industrial revolution. They've got a centre for cyber security. Um, they've got the key man Klaus Schwab he's the only man who gets a headline in this part of the website but otherwise we've got a lot of these other specially selected world leaders and they're driving us to uh, the fourth industrial revolution which they're not actually discussing with us and they're picking the team of people that are going to do that so this is uh, part of the page for that section and um, I'll just say here that the independence claim is a lie they say that they adhere to the principles of independence impartiality moral integrity and intellectual integrity Well, they're not independent because they declare that you've got to be selected to be part of the claim so that's a lie and if that bit is a lie I think it's reasonable to suggest that all the other claims are a lie. David I'll just um, Let you come back on that one point very quickly. These people show themselves for what they are, what they really are um, with increasing clarity, I think.
2: I simply offer, as as you're going through there, uh, it occurred to me that a good tagline for the World Economic Forum would be the Tower of Basel uh, meets
0: the Tower of Babel. (laughs) Yep, thank you for that. And I'll just end with this one on this segment that basically the viewer said, but what can we do about this? And this is a common theme isn't it when this sort of stuff comes up it's so big so powerful i'm just going to reply to this that uh, you've got to talk about it you've got to expose it you've got to warn others you've got to research the people and organizations to find the links to the policy that's coming into uk and expose those individuals i've said here that we're deceiving the public and betraying the constitution by peddling these malicious foreign power political agendas from the world economic forum you need to expose it talk about it but above all make it personal it's not ai that's creating this it's people they should be identified but in a peaceful way
1: Uh, right david just uh, very quickly then let's uh, end with this little bit of uh, scottish news
2: yes this is uh, uh information from my colleagues at fresh start foundation and uh, we met with Police Scotland on the 18th of August 2020 to discuss a case, um, which we, uh, we know as the John Shields case. Um, this is uh, the conclusions from a long presentation we made to the police. Um, conclusions. Uh, Mr Shields is innocent of any crime, he's been wrongfully convicted. His arrest itself unlawful was carried out to enable an illegal home invasion by Perth and Kinross Council social workers. His bail conditions obtained by means of deception and coercion were used as an excuse for the abduction of his son by Perth and King Ross Council. The multi-agency conspiracy that brought about this abuse of justice of the justice process involves Perth and King Ross Council, Police Scotland, the Procurator Fiscal's Office and John Swinney, Deputy First Minister of Scotland. It is essential that the interests that in the interest of justice, this matter be rigorously investigated and all criminal wrongdoing prosecuted. The core issue of the sexual, physical and emotional abuse of John Shields Jr. in the Mallard Church of Scotland home must also finally be investigated. Uh, As Police Scotland are implicated in these events and no man can be a judge in his own cause. the Investigation should involve officers from outside of Police Scotland. And as as we stated, in the famous case of Somerset versus Stewart, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. That was a summary of a a long and detailed case with lots of of information that I can't uh, put into the public domain that we made to Police Scotland. Um, Six weeks later, they replied. The reply did not even mention Perth and Kinross Council. Um, And on the 6th of October, uh, the Fresh Start Foundation wrote back to them, insisting that Perth and Kinross Council be investigated uh, and asking for a meeting with the Chief Constable uh, of Police Scotland. And well, now this. Perth and Kinross council chief executive steps down after just two years in the role. Well, that's a surprise. Cardin Reid, who's been instrumental in creating the much vaunted Perth and Kinross offer. And if you want to know what that is, join us for UK column News Extra. Uh, She's been appointed head of NHS Education Scotland. Council leader Murray said she will undoubtedly be a loss to Perth and Kinross. She's an outstanding chief chief executive combining hard work with vision um she's joined the nhs nhs education for scotland so you got a very unusual cv for this she doesn't seem to be particularly um you know, qualified compared to the, the existing incumbent um uh, who's in temporary charge of this organization or compared to previous holders of this post but she's got the post anyway and uh, very surprisingly she does uh, uh, know john swinney reasonably well because She's um, on a committee here, the COVID-19 Education Recovery Group, um, which is chaired by Mr. Swinney. So it's just very striking, gentlemen, that uh, when the pressure is bought, brought on the conduct of Perth and Kinross Council, all of a sudden, the Chief Executive decides to seek opportunities elsewhere. I wonder if those two things are in any way connected.
0: I think we might assume that they are, but of course, uh, we may never know. But uh... You did something together with a group of other people who worked extremely hard, and something has has happened. So I think this is another example that when we press buttons and do things, we can get a result. Uh,
1: we should leave it there.
0: We should leave it there. Okay. No
1: final slide. Oh well, if you, well if you want to, yes, we we could we could do the final slide. Uh, David, I think you we better. I, you, I think we I think we should do the final slide. Yes. Okay. Well, well, here it is. Then you better explain.
2: Right, so this is uh, a, 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 a young and healthy woman is walking uh, presumably in a, a supermarket and a, and a grossly morbidly obese woman in a wheelchair with a McDonald's drink and bag um, is saying from behind her mask, put a mask on, you're putting my health at risk. Uh, just one of many examples of the crazy illogicality that is COVID-19 that we're all having to live with daily. Yes.
0: And I'll smile and say, if you read the documentation for the World Economic uh, uh, Eight Predictions, when they're talking about less meat in the text of the main document, it does actually reassure us we'll still be able to get fast food, but it will be of better quality, allegedly. Soylient green, probably. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, We will be back at the same time on Wednesday. Bye-bye.